From Immersive Labs, this is Cyberhumanity. Hello again, I'm your host Chris Pace. Cyberhumanity is the podcast taking cyber security personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavours, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. And this episode is another one of those. I'm joined by a few vulnerable hosts of my very own in Kev Breen, Paul Bentham and Max Vetter. We are going to start this week with the NHS in the UK and their track and trace figures. There was a correction published um, this week to the number of reported coronavirus cases in the UK. Um, In fact, nearly 16,000 of them confirmed cases that were then added to the track and trace system. Now, you might be asking yourself... Gosh, that's a lot of cases. However, did they go missing? And it turns out that the reason they went missing was because the spreadsheet, <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, the spreadsheet that they were being stored on ran out of rows. <laughs> it basically reached its maximum size and therefore failed to update, even though data was being entered into it. I mean, where do we begin? Well, what's, what's worse is they... they... They they informed them if they were they were positive or not, but what they didn't do because of the lack of data transfer is they didn't chase up the people that they had actually been in contact with. So it's actually not only is it's Excel, but people might die because they because of Excel. Oh so, no! I mean, tell me it's not a government operation. I, we were so positive about this as well. Like when it launched, we were I, well, I certainly was like, "Wow, well, look at this cool app! They've done a really great job." And then in the background, <laughs> I was like, and <laughs> and <laughs> the "Oh dear!" So then that raised all kinds of questions, like, "Why? What? A Y an Excel spreadsheet?" <laughs> You, if you look at this, you and there'll be data scientists and data analysts across the country going, "Yeah, of course. Like we do, we do our data analysis in Excel. That's what we do. It's our go-to tool." Yeah, but I did data analysis when I was sixteen for DEFRA, actually, for part of the government, and I worked out that after sixty-five thousand rows, it cuts everything else off within <laughs> within two days of my work experience. So it's it's amazing that they they didn't. Uh, Max, is this your system? Did you write the system? Are they yeah. reusing yeah, they're, they're reusing my my one macro that I wrote? You, did you, know, you actually document it? Did you probably didn't document it? Did you? Yeah, of course not. That's hacker. why they. That's why they didn't realise. That's why you're in cyber because you're just a hacker, <laughs> not an engineer. If you're an engineer, you didn't it properly. Yeah. My understanding of this, though, is like I. It's kind of easy for us to conceptualise this. I think what what's happening here is that Public Health England, which is the government body, so there's a lot of like, oh, it's okay, they built the app, but it's probably their fault. Well, actually, it was the government standard. Um, they pull. They're pulling in data from loads of different sources from all the kind of places that all the tests are being done. So I think they they're doing a data load in CSV. So it's all comma separate comma separated variables. So they're pulling in that data in, and somebody, and this is probably quite a good thing, wrote a macro probably to load from CSV into a templated spreadsheet to bring all that data together and then get it ready for the press release. And of course that's pretty timely because that's being having to be done every day. So they automated it, and I and I'm almost certain that it was totally fine at one point 
And then what's happened is the number of tests have gone higher and this thing's failing quietly. So I think it's, it's you know, I think something like it generates four times. So if you import 1,400 rows uh, or test results, it creates four copies of it or something like that. So it's massively expanding it. And then it was probably quietly failing as it went over the row limit. This is all really interesting, but the, there's a fact that a lot of people like kind of glossed over. This limit of 65,536 rows was removed in Office 2007. Yes, yeah, government, it's government, Kev. So if they're importing CSV files, so this isn't an X, so the original thought was that XLS, they were saving as XLS files, which had that limit, and maybe they were um, hard saving that way. They're importing CSV files. If they're hitting a 65,000 row limit on import then that, to me, suggests that maybe they're not using the latest version of Office. Well, that was suggested in the Verge article, but in very, in a very casual way. Like, oh, older versions, you know, ha- only have this limit of 65,536 rows. But to us, the security people, we were like, whoa, 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 hang on a minute, what? Yeah, they've got about that many CVEs as well. It's like a CVE per <laughs> row. Let's say they were using Office 2007. Is Office 2007 still supported? I don't believe Office 2007 is supported for security updates unless you've purchased the uh, the government extension of we'll support XP 2003. Pretty much you give us money, we'll support whatever you want. Now, I think we touched on this last week. We were talking about extended support for particular uh, for particular products simply because... Lot in lots of examples, government organizations that are so big and unwieldy can't scale to transformation projects like apparently upgrading people to the latest version of Excel somehow. And so what ends up happening is they end up paying whoever it is, in this case it would seem Microsoft, to be able to carry on using an old technically unsupported version there is a little bit more complexity to why they don't upgrade what normally happens and the reason why they end up in this kind of um disaster zone of having to pay the extended support thing is that they've built an application like you can imagine this can't you they've built an application and we've all done it we've built these kind of beautiful things that are full of macros and they're automated and you click the button and it auto calculates and it's probably for some really dreadful reason that they've built this thing and that thing stops working in the latest version. So now you're either having to replace this application you've built on top of the Excel 2003 version, 2007 version, whatever, or, or you pay for support. And of course, it's a bit easier to pay for the support than pay for the big lift and shift of the new application. And, and, and government and well, companies, people get themselves stuck in this. It was an IE6. I can remember this problem with IE6. Like, no, oh, we can't upgrade to IE10 or whatever it was at the time because application won't work. And then you end up with these kind of browser plugins to support the legacy. Oh, it's just like an absolute mess. And that's probably, well, if they are using an old version, it's probably something to do with that kind of thing. Yeah, we. And that's the thing is there's lots of guesswork, there's lots of supposition, but we don't, uh, at the moment, we don't actually know uh, exactly what the cause was, exactly what version they're using. Um, yeah. 
you know, from a product perspective, this is quite funny because, of course, this is the kind of thing we that we do as product people when we're building uh, minimum viable products. We'll do the minimum viable product and make it a concierge service. What does that mean? Well, we'll build a beautiful front end and then the back end will have like... You know, Excel, in this case. <laughs> It'll be fine. The user experience will be great. Well, what goes wrong if the data's wrong? What could go wrong? The terminology being thrown around was like, as public health England workers tried to load more cases into the national database, they were rejected. And I was thinking, hang on, you've written the words national database there. What you meant to say was into the <laughs> spreadsheet in Excel. It's not. It is not a database. It is a spreadsheet. <laughs> I half feel sorry for Public Health England here, and I half feel like we dodged a bullet when they switched to the Android Apple um, n- n- exposure notifications API. Because could you imagine that this was the situation if they were tracking, doing track and trace or contact notifications because they'd created a database uh, that, that it was getting all of the track and trace information? <laughs> it would have, yeah, and it would have definitely been called. Dido's COVID cases v1.1 <laughs> underscore this final. is definitely final <laughs> underscore zero zero <laughs> don't worry guys I'm, a, I'm an expert this is completely secure and definitely the right way of doing it <laughs> trust me the guys at talk talk did <gasps> uh, <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> oh. yeah on, on some of the articles they they, they then go into Previous Excel errors. So a previous Excel error in 2013 at JP Morgan masked, masked the loss of almost $6 billion. Wow. <laughs> after, after a cell mistakenly divided the sum of two interest rates. <laughs> oh, that's, that's even Wait, better. Because we had a, a data breach, a privacy data breach that was an Excel spreadsheet problem uh, recently in, in the UK because the... Um, there was a spreadsheet that had the New Year's honours list. And so for any international list- listeners, we have this whole thing where the Queen honours, and I don't think she comes up with it, I think her government tells her, but the Queen honours people who've contributed to society in some way, and you get people that get MBEs and OBEs and CBEs and Knights of the Garter and King's Medals. She gets her sword out, doesn't she? She gets her sword out, and that's, uh, you know, like Jiminy Cricket or whatever. And the... um. And uh, they, the capping, uh, was a cabinet office uh, produced the spreadsheet with all the details, and they were like, "Hmm, we need to publish this on the website, but we don't want to publish their uh, address because they had the address in the spreadsheet." I know what we'll do: we'll hide that column. Oh. <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> what with a filter? Just, just hide yeah. it. Right click. Just hide. Turns out, right click, unhide. It turns out. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't know whether great. it was that they put this actual spreadsheet in there and then people were just unhiding the column or whether they did some sort of export to HTML thing and then it ignored the hidden columns. But either way, the personal, the home addresses of all the people that were honoured in the, um, which includes, by the way, uh, members of the armed forces uh, who might have served in Northern Ireland or members of the intelligence community uh, had the home addresses on. I think that was up for about four or five hours. Uh, before they spotted it and were like, oh, crap. So Excel, root of all evil. There's just too much data everywhere. That's the problem. There's too, there's just too much of it, and it's unwieldy, and in the end, it ends up in a spreadsheet. Well, not, that is... not, not quite enough data 
in this case. <laughs> in this case, it was missing 15,856 rows. <laughs> the question that I was asking was, you know, if they're, if they're using, all joking aside, if they're using a pre-2007 version of Excel, is that by its definition any more vulnerable to any kind of attack than the newer than the newer version it would seem to me obvious that it would be but is that the case so the important thing to realize uh when we talk about this is these are office-based exploits which means that somebody has to target the attack at you so this is uh you receive a document uh, via email and you open it uh, or you download a document and you open it there's a social engineering aspect uh, to becoming infected via a malicious document. So yes, uh, Office 2007 and 2003 have significantly more, um, like they have a higher exploitability rating. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be uh, affected. Well, hang on a minute, because if I was a threat actor worth my salt, now I know that they use earlier versions of Excel, the first thing I'm going to do is set up a phishing campaign targeting Public Health England with old versions of Excel documents, um, aren't I? Yeah, but now now you know that, um, that's probably a, a risk. So if you're an attacker listening to this, like, don't do that. It's not Chris's fault if that happens. Oh, sorry. I was just saying that's what I would do. <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> I suspect the NCSC have been all over it. I don't think Public Health England are going to move. Gonna, well, they're not going to. Where were they? Well, I, don't think gonna, I don't think PHE are going to be moving for an NCC person. I, I, I presume if the if they are using an old version of Wind, uh, of Excel, that security settings, you know, if they set it with a password or whatever, is going to be a lot worse than the the modern versions of Excel. I presume because there's there's vulnerabilities out and stuff like that. If they're sharing, they're also transferring a CSV, which is clear text, not password protected. <laughs> yeah, that's that's even worse. So there's no, so actually, there's no level of encryption. There's no level of encryption. That's on That's not fair to say. Uh, they so the standard transfer mechanism for something like that would be to put it in a password protected zip file, uh, which is something they might be doing. We don't know how they're doing. They that. might be doing that. They might be. might be doing that. They might have updated their office. Kev, you're being very magnanimous. <laughs> Usually we like to rampantly speculate and you're being all I know, like but considered. 60% and... chance that it might be. <laughs> you just described the best practice in a way that made it seem like that was definitely what they were doing. Yeah. They're almost certainly <laughs> adhering absolutely to every bullet point of their, um, of their uh, uh, data protection uh, policy. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't a USB stick either. Like, no USBs, none of that. <laughs> yeah, the raging cynic in you clearly wants to say, oh my God, this old version is horribly vulnerable and almost certainly being targeted by APT groups as we speak. Because that's what other alarmist, that's what other alarmist vendors would say, but we're not those guys. <laughs> I'm trying to stay at beat. It's hard. Of course, we're totally missing the point that we're even using Excel in the first place. Like, the, it shouldn't, there shouldn't be an Excel spreadsheet on the critical data path here. Talking of potentially being hacked by dodgy emails, um, this week... Uh, Tenuous. Tenuous. <laughs> it's a little bit like me saying talking of other stuff related to cyber security here is something related talking to cyber data. security <laughs> an article was published this week saying that experienced fraudsters had made off with 15 million dollars from an unnamed u.s company after carefully running an email compromise that took about two months to complete 
It says the cyber criminals executed their plan with surgical precision after gaining access to email conversations about a commercial transaction and then inserting themselves into that exchange. So they've defined this as a man in the email um, attack, which I have ne- I, I'll be honest, hands up, never heard of before. So Kev, can you explain to me this phase one that they've described as man in the email? What does that actually mean? Yeah, so what they're talking about here is uh, something we call business email compromise and we're all familiar uh, with phishing. Uh, we're all familiar with those kind of attacks, with malware attacks, like malicious documents. What we're talking about here is something like subtly different. So the idea is I'm going to brute force uh, the password to your Office 365 account. And I'm going to try like hundreds of different passwords. And if you're not very good and you don't have multi-factor authentication, then I'm going to gain access to your email account. So now I can log into your email box, I can see your emails, I can send emails as you, uh, and I can manipulate emails. And that's what we mean by man in the email. So it's an attacker sat inside your mailbox, uh, typically something like Gmail or Office 365 or web-based Outlook, um, and they've got access to all of your emails. I'm just going to, I really, this is a horrible, horrible phrase. Man in the email. Like, it's... Man in the middle was acceptable because it, there was a person in the middle of a comms link. Man in the email is dreadful. And whoever came up with this, whichever marketing nonsense came up with this, needs to have a good hard look at themselves. It's not a phrase I've ever used. And even in working some of the organizations, like when we were talking about this, we always talked about business email compromise. Like we never declared it man in the email. Uh, it, oh, and that's why it's different to phishing, isn't it? Because you have compromised somebody's email account and you're sitting in there. That's the thing, yeah. That, that's the difference. How have you compromised it? Got their password. Yeah. <laughs> but how? But you got it. Credential stuff. Got the password. Uh, this is typically done through um, a couple of ways. So one is credential stuffing. Uh, and password reuse. So if I found your Netflix password mm. online and you're not very clever and you use the same password for Netflix and your organization's $15 million uh, email account, then I just guess it and I use it and I'm in. Uh, and that's the typical kind of attack here. Chris and I were talking on a uh, webinar earlier this week uh, where there was a uh, compromise in a crisis scenario that we were talking through. And that person's email got captured using a phishing campaign. So, Kev, maybe they yes, got it not okay. just through stuffing, not just through password reuse. I think that's a bit mean on the user. <laughs> maybe they fished them. I think it could have been just the victim, the unwitting victim of a phishing campaign. And it's the security people's fault for not mandating two-factor authentication. So I, I will accept that there are phishing campaigns that will send out links that look, uh, they start, so basically what the attacker will do is, so if I wanted to get your, say we use Office 365, I'm going to create a clone of Office 365, and I'll put it on office-365-internal.com. So I buy that domain for £2, uh, I, I clone Office 365's legitimate login pages, and I send you an email saying, uh, we've just moved all of our internal stuff to here, uh, can you click the link and make sure your account still works please? You click the link, enter your username, enter your password. That sends all that data back to me, the attacker, and then I just forward you on to the real Office 365 account. Well, and the other day, we other episode, we also covered that um, OAuth uh, compromise version where you um, you gave a, sec- a third party 
access to your inbox that way as well so i i will accept that i was being slightly facetious when i said that the only i was trying to draw the distinction away from this isn't a phishing attack this is different yes the vector still exists but that's not what's <laughs> what were we talking about anyway i can't forgot about what the story was i was trying to get i was just trying to argue with ken <laughs> you're not trying you are <laughs> so essentially the way the thing that they did the thing what they that they did was they once they had access to the victim's mailbox they did the thing where they set up the forwarding rules so that they could see what was happening in the inbox ah. and then they essentially i'm assuming inserted themselves into a conversation by spoofing a domain or something like that they must have had to make it look like they were legit as part of that as part of that yeah, email you can, conversation you can sometimes just change the so this happens a lot to um people you know people involved in buying houses there's a huge amount of fraud where if they if they mm. intercept some emails where oh you've just got to you only just got to transfer your thirty thousand pounds to this this bank account and then they intercept the emails and change bank account details and you send your thirty thousand pounds not to your lawyer but to some fraudster and that's kind of what what but they've you know they've got access to emails so they can uh, intercept that and then change the de- details of any kind of financial uh, transactions that are going back and forth the thing i love is uh the phase two so the attackers like clearly understood enough about like how banks operate that this was likely to get flagged like quite quickly so what they did is they created a hidden uh inbox and when the any of those emails were coming in about like talking about like confirming the transaction they just deleted them and moved them off to a hidden inbox so that they knew these emails were going to come in, so they deliberately set it up so that they could get away with it, uh, and it took like a couple of weeks. So, the, so basically, the user the user couldn't see those emails because they weren't in their inbox, um, but the attacker could because they'd hidden them in a folder on that mailbox where they could see them. And I assume that meant they were also replying. They were. I'm assuming they were replying to those emails with the with the relevant information as far as the attacker was concerned, and then deleting those emails from the sent items, so you never would have known they were there. And just like that, <laughs> I'm not a big Office 365 user, but um, in G- Gmail, it does tell you if you're logged in from a different location. Like maybe that should be a little bit more prominent. So as a user, you'd be like, "Hey, just to let you know, somebody else is in your inbox right now." Yeah, but if you were in the inbox already and you were quick enough, you could, you know, all all you have to do is once you're in, set up a filter that gets rid of all these kinds of emails and you'd never see them, would you? I know, but you would see that somebody else was in your inbox at the same time as you. Like maybe not just the inbox, but the your your whole mailbox. So if the right, attacker was impersonating you and you were there were two people simultaneously logged in from different geographic mm. locations, then in that sort of situation, you really hope that the tool... I mean, the tool knows that those two people logged in simultaneously. The problem there is I am simultaneously logged into my email account from uh, Bristol in the UK uh, and from California in the US uh, and from Ireland because my VPN is connected. So when I access the web yeah. and I switch between my browser sessions... Why is there a Kevin in California? Because uh, that's where one of our EC2 infrastructures is set. Uh, so when I switch over to the VPN to access our infrastructure in California... Okay, I really wish I hadn't asked. <laughs> 
but you know it still should tell you like the privacy this is the thing right on loads of social media tools it does this it does it on gmail it tells you warns you at the bottom if somebody else is in your inbox at the same time as you you get emails to say hey just to let you know somebody else, you just somebody's just logged into your account like i don't understand why office 365 is not doing that i even get that with netflix if someone else logs into logs into my account somewhere else, right? But you, but you can you can turn it off though. So so probably one of the first things they'd do is log in and turn off that those alerts. Surely that's uh, an admin anyone. thing. I mean, multi-factor authentication, like just straight up stops this in its tracks. Uh, the reason why I went down this route is that because I think some of the mitigations that they've identified on this particular hack were IMAP Pop Three, mm. like other like tools i think there's a security versus usability thing here as well so i think actually what's gone on here is that office 365 has been configured to a allow for forwarding of email which frankly like is the first thing you turn off uh b is that did i say one or two i can't remember b, one you've, b uh, it's also allowed 12 <laughs> one b <laughs> i i i i <laughs> ix the um i think the other thing that they've done is somebody's gone look i need to access this on my iphone i really want you to turn on no 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 no. i don't want to use the office 36 outlook app i want to use apple mail yeah uh, apple mail so please yeah please turn that on for me since somebody's like done that for them and then all of a sudden you've got these because they aren't subject to uh two-factor authentication so if you are in uh, like "Quote unquote man in the they should call it man in the inbox rather. Oh yeah, way, that's much cooler, man, isn't it? The, man in the mailbox. <laughs> um, yeah, man in the mailbox. <laughs> That'd be a great logo as well. That's a whole different. But that's that. I reckon you know. Let's take I don't know rampant speculation, but maybe that's the reason why this security vulnerability is in there because it's not as simple as like just stick on to to a to authentication don't let people forward email but we have also talked in the past i mean you you're saying about two-factor authentication but we've talked in the past about ways to get around that as well haven't we with um with vishing um you know vishing campaigns that uh basically find ways to collect people's um, you know, or circumvent people's uh, second factor. So if they're committed enough, and $15 million is not a small amount of money, if they're committed enough, they're going to find a way to do it. The one thing I will say is that SMS-based two-factor authentication should be just globally banned. Uh, no, I'm, so... no, I'm not going to let you go there. I'm not letting you go there. I think that's elitist. Like H-top and T-top, there's no, so many better things. <laughs> It is. Stop, it's stop not, talking. It's not. Yeah, I'm not going to let you. I'm not let you do that you, because you you've got to have a smartphone. You've got to have token based RSA tokens. It's not ubiquitous you, enough. You can't do tokens. What are you talking about? RSA tokens. Not like there's an entire company as, who as made an, their living on selling yeah. them. Okay. Well, you need to re. You need to reframe your banning. Then you're going to ban it for <laughs> enterprises. You can't ban it for Facebook in like government websites yeah, and stuff like okay. that. Anywhere that's got $15 million they can lose in a week probably wants okay, to invest okay, in a I'm smartphone going, for their employer. I'm going, I'm going there. For, okay, <laughs> whoa. I'm going there, Kevin. Right. So oh, Kevin. Oh, Kevin. <laughs> this is where we're going. You're going Kevin now. So you're the, you, you are the CSO at Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, or what's it called in America? IRS. Um, IRS in America, right? You've got to deal with the general public. Have you just banned SMS two-factor authentication? Uh, yeah. Really? So the whole public have to... H- 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 H-
I have proper two-factor authentication on HMRC. Yeah, of course you do, because you've turned it on. But you can't, ma- you can't ban SMS. I, all right, I will caveat that by saying organisations should. Right. Like you Google. Already said, you already so said that once. Google yeah. bought Google bought every single one of their employees a hardware token, and they've had zero zero phishing attacks yeah, since they did that. I do. Shut up, Google, not you. <laughs> My Google. I'm talking Stop about saying Google. Google. <laughs> Speaking of uh, gigantic corporations with loads of money, um, this week Cisco have been fined over what I think was a patent breach was it a patent breach was that what it was anyway it was all very dodgy they would have been told to pay uh 1.9 billion dollars we will put our fingers on the exact on the exact figure but they basically lost out in a trial brought bright a virginia company that none of us can pronounce the name of does anyone want to have a go centripetal Centri- is that what centripetal. Centripetal. Or centripetal? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's centripetal force, isn't it? Centripetal. Like when you swing. Centripetal oh force. That's centrifugal, isn't it? Uh, it's two different things, yeah. Uh, centripetal and centrifugal. Yeah, one's going in, one's going out. Well, so I th- the English pronunciation, or the UK pronunciation, is centripetal. Oh. I think the yeah, US exactly. pronunciation uh, maybe is centripetal centripetal so i mean anyway but it's it's called english isn't it i mean i don't mean to go there on this but I'm, <laughs> there is a whole collection of words that somehow i don't know how this happened but our u.s friends have managed to sort of <laughs> i'm gonna say i'm gonna say accidentally mess up the pronunciation like buoy and niche and aluminum. aluminum. Like, how does this happen? Louder. Like, it's not all the words that that have gone wrong. It's just a few. <laughs> <laughs> They've gone wrong. It's called English. I'm sorry. It was English first. Anyway, anyway, look. Whatever, whatever, however it's pronounced. Networks Incorporated um, have brought this case against Cisco because it, it, it seems like from reading the story that basically Cisco were lining up to potentially acquire this company perhaps and so therefore had access to their technology and had signed ndas to say that you know that they were doing things in the right way and all this kind of stuff and then less than a year later very similar functionality appeared in uh in cisco uh, in cisco products and so now they have been uh, uh ordered to pay uh, to cough up because they've essentially infringed these uh, infringe these patents i couldn't i couldn't love this story more the makers <laughs> of webex have been fined two billion dollars <laughs> wow like I, the only thing that would make this story like better is if this software that they stole from this company uh was the, the <laughs> software that would have made webex better that's the only way this story could be even better for me <laughs> Well, ironically, um, you'll be very pleased to know. Do you, would you like to know how this trial was conducted? Oh, please tell me it wasn't over WebEx. Over Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> and and, well, and did that their was software a... not work? Did it keep crashing? <laughs> did well, the judge say, well, we can't use it because it's basically malware? That was <laughs> a bone of some contention because a motion was filed in May from Cisco's lawyers saying um 
actually, we don't think that it would be very good to have the trial over Zoom because there's a risk that the public might be able to see what was going on in the Zoom. To which, of course, (laughs) the judge responded, well, it is a trial in a courtroom. It will itself be open to the public because it's a courtroom. Um, so I, think it's... I love this. The Cisco was scared that they'd be using a video conferencing tool that would actually work. Yeah. That people could actually use. Didn't the judge say it might have been, you know, prejudicial to the case? And and probably because WebEx would keep keep crashing. So so they'd never get to the point. I think the judge actually said that using the company's own software might open them up to prejudicial accusations if the technology failed during the trial. And I was like, this judge, this judge, he's used WebEx before. He was like, guys, guys, we need to make this happen over Zoom. (laughs) Because he actually multiplied. So the damages was 755 million and the judge multiplied it by two and a half to give them... 1.9 1.9 billion and then he added the 13.7 million pre-judgment and then he added the 10 percent royalties for the next three years on the products uh so yeah it just kept piling so it's not 1 billion 903 million 239 thousand 287 dollars and 50 cents it's also 252 million on top of that you know what i love it this story that it is we're a startup and i've you know worked in startups we've all worked in you know we're all we're all passionate about the kind of innovation the passion that you put into this can can you imagine you're in there you're sent you're the cto or the ceo of central petal inc and you go and you're like oh my god this is the best day ever we're going to go and talk to cisco cisco global megacorp and they're gonna maybe they're gonna acquire us maybe we're gonna do a massive deal like let's just make sure We've got some pretty cool tech in here. Have we got the non-disclosure agreements in place? Yeah, 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 yeah. All signed, sealed, totally, like, completely bulletproof. We've got it. Okay. So we'll tell them all about this cool technology that we've got that's going to transform video conferencing or whatever <clears throat> whatever this software is. Right, yeah, everything's fine. Ah, oh, that meeting went really well. I felt that they really liked the tech, but all of a sudden, like, they're not, they're not returning our calls. They've ghosted us. What's, what's going on here? Please tell me you've seen this episode of Silicon Valley <laughs> because this is ex- this is exactly what happens. I, I have, yeah. <laughs> they go in, they pr- the guy gets one of the guys in the startup gets really enthusiastic, writes down all of the tech and how it works on a whiteboard, <laughs> and then the guys take a photo of it and basically build exactly the same software. <laughs> That's I I just I think it's utterly reprehensible the the, the absolute theft of intellectual property built by a small startup with and i love the fact that that small startup is now got they you know like maybe they've had i don't know what their revenue looked like but it didn't look like two billion dollars up front on one day and it didn't look <laughs> like 252 million dollars over the next 10 years for doing sweet fa i love it i hope that their ceo the cto the, the founders the shareholders of that company are sitting drinking sangria on a beautiful desert island going ha ha in your face cisco if you get a chance to read through any of the articles about the, it is the story that keeps on giving because cisco had also um petitions that the petition that the judge recused himself when they discovered that his wife owned shares in cisco before he'd made the decision about the whole zoom situation um he 
anyway, they glossed over that because it turned out really the judge had made a decision already um, before he found out about the ownership of these uh, the ownership of these uh, these shares, and obviously it wouldn't have helped him much anyway, given the the decision that he reached. Um, but it, going back to the story itself, um, there were these four patents that were held by this this company, um, and Cisco had met them under a non disclosure agreement to discuss a partnership, which I think we can we can infer that that Im- implied acquisition or at least some kind of fiduciary or financial connection. Um, and then that happened in 2016. And, <laughs> and the lawyer representing them basically said that Cisco just kept coming back and asking for more, like a little bit more information and a little bit more information, a little bit, almost like they were building something <laughs> at the same time as they were coming to ask them for all this extra stuff. And then the judge at the end said, look, the fact that Cisco released these products with their functionality within a year, within one year of these meetings, just goes beyond mere coincidence. And the judge also said this was not close at all. This was like basically open and shut, bang to rights. You did it. Cough up. I love the fact that the judge even described the whole infringement as willful and egregious as well. It's like, it doesn't get better than that. Which leads us neatly to (laughs) our regular feature. The most, in fairness, let's be honest, come on, the best bit of the podcast uh, which <laughs> well, it's a good is... one this week i'm quite excited because pen test oh, partners I... have been on it <laughs> i know that you i know that you think it's good because it's a little bit smutty <laughs> <laughs> you, you get a bit you get a little bit you get a little bit benny hill Snickers, about these things <laughs> so should we should we um i'm, I'm just I want to you do can your cough voice. can you do your cough <clears throat> Hackers, you can hear me you can hear me trying to pick my words so carefully because there's about to be like the rampant innuendo that's about to ensue. So my apologies in advance to listeners who have a more mature sensibility, but you are about to have to put up with a lot of snickering, I'm afraid. Anyway, I will I will read the headline, but only because I feel it's important for the listeners. <clears throat> Cellmate. Male chastity gadget hack could lock users in. Now, I realise that many of you have listened to that headline. If you haven't read the story, there are there are a lot of questions. First of all, yes, there is a thing that exists, which is a high-tech chastity belt for men. That is a thing that exists, okay? And the BBC describes it, not me. The BBC describes it as an internet-linked sheath with no <laughs> stop, with no manual override, which is a little unfortunate. So owners might have been faced with the prospect of having to use a bolt cutter to free themselves, <laughs> or, an <angle> grinder. <laughs> or an angle grinder to free themselves from its metal clamp. Anyway, the hack that was discovered by our friends at Pentest Partners um, was essentially a way that hackers could remotely lock all of the devices in use simultaneously. Um, yes, so now it's been fixed by um, by the Chinese developer after uh, the researchers here in the UK had uh, uh, had discovered it. So there we are. There were 40,000 devices uh, in use and the hack meant that they could lock all 40,000 of them in one go. Who who even knew that there were four? Like, wow. Wow. Did, did you see the, the comment? <laughs> the comment TechCrunch, uh, Chief Executive suddenly, subsequently told 
<laughs> he had tried to tackle the issue. Is that all you've got, Matt? <laughs> Come on, Matt. <laughs> it, was, it was in the BBC News article that was. Um, these things aren't cheap either. 145 quid to put a like a internet connected box on your member. That's that's a lot of money. I just, I I'm, I almost don't want to ask this question because I'm not really entirely sure it's relevant. I, I think you should ask the question, Chris. Why? <laughs> <laughs> but, but why? I like that. There's a map on the BBC. Uh, the the thing about the BBC here is I think they love this. They love like a little bit of like smutty innuendo because they, they, there's not an art BBC News article about F5 vulnerabilities or salt stack or any of the other kind <laughs> no, of... No, of course not. It's classic. It's, it's pretty... It is pretty tabloid, <laughs> let's be honest. It's a little bit tabloid. But there's a, there's a map, a Google map of the with pinned locations of all the users of these uh, chastity devices globally. And it turns out that they're pretty well distributed in North America, Western Europe, and Southeast Asia. I hadn't read the pen test partners for write up on this, uh, and I've just um, I've just seen a carrot loaded into a cellmate on the pen test partners website. <laughs> <laughs> it took me by surprise. Well, they had to they had to test it. I'm assuming they had to test it. Or you can get it off by putting a battery onto the connections that can't use it. Uh, you can you can short you can pop a uh, some you of the, the front cover off. You. <laughs> There's no nice way of saying anything around this. Uh, you can open the front and you can short the motor out uh, using the internal battery. And then what happens? You do, I mean, you oh, want to be careful with that. Motor. You want to short the motor out. You don't want it to <laughs> tighten up, do you? Dear, oh dear. So, Kev, I almost hesitate to ask, but. Hackers could, like, hackers, <laughs> hackers probably won't. Well, it's been fixed, so. <laughs> it's a hackers could, like, they probably wouldn't. Um, like, the, the nice thing about Pentest Partners um, is they do a lot of this research, and. It isn't Pentest Partners. They, they, like, have a whole, like, barrage of sex toy hacks. They own a jumbo jet for the purposes of no, no. hacking it. Um, yeah. It's unlikely that a lot of, like, the, they pen test a lot of sex toys. Uh, and it's great for doing the research and uncovering, like, how the internals work and, like, showcasing how poor some of the app development is. But for all the things they've done, I think it's incredibly unlikely that hackers uh, would actively um, exploit this. Uh, I mean, that, that being said, like, this is a nice ransomware attack, if you think about it. Yeah, if you target the right people, if you know their email addresses from the server then you can basically lock the device and send them an email immediately saying if you want your device to be unlocked please send x bitcoin to you know sextortion my wallet yeah it is a bit like sextortion isn't it but i think we're saying i think we're saying hackers probably won't because at the end of the day they could just mine cryptocurrency right or do ransomware they're probably (laughs) they're probably not going to bother okay our last one Hackers could have turned Comcast TV remotes into listening devices. The issue has been fixed. That is that's the actual headline. The actual headline says the issue has been fixed. It's not much of a headline. 
Comcast's Xfinity voice remote had a security flaw that gave hackers an entry to spy on consumers in their homes. But the cable giant has said that he has fixed the vulnerability before harm could be could be done. And now we get to it. This is one of our like this to me classic hackers could. Although the hack was complex and required radio equipment, it is the latest example of security threats found in connected devices that consumers increasingly bring home which is basically code for saying we know that this is unlikely to ever be hacked but it does make a point about smart devices in the home fear-mongering at the best oh dear dear oh dear previous research on such threats has focused on internet connected devices such as smart speakers but tv remotes haven't got much attention (laughs) So the researchers thought, you know what? Let's have a look at TV remotes. I've um, I, I, well, the first version of this article I read was like, well, when it was all infrared, it didn't really matter. But now they've gone to RF. It's a much bigger vulnerability. It really isn't. But hackers could sit outside your house and hack your smart connected remote control. Or they could just look in through the window like they would normally. Why does it require radio equipment? Well, that's how, you know, you're like, if you, you've not got one of these with your TV where you don't actually, it's not infrared anymore, but it's over RF. Oh, yes. Well, they, I thought, I just assumed they all worked like that now. Well, well, well maybe they do. But um, like I've got an um, uh, Amazon thing, which I hate, obviously. Uh, and it's got an Alexa button where you, so you can talk to it. And I think a lot of remote controls now have the kind of talk to it feature. And of course, that's way too much bandwidth for infrared. So it's all RF. And that's what they're hacking. They're hacking the microphone and the little... Hang on. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So for clarity, this has nothing whatsoever to do with the device being smart in any way. This is to do with intercepting the radio transmissions from the remote control. And by the way, of course, you have to be a minimum, uh, sorry, a maximum of 65 feet away. So it's not like some guy and it's not like some guy in russia can go on to showdown see if you've got a vulnerable um a tv remote and then hack you he has to get on a plane yeah. come to outside your house stand 65 feet away and intercept the signal from your tv remote for what possible reason he could go through your bin and learn more about you from that than by bothering to do this it's it's worse than that uh it found the flaw that would have let bad guys install malicious firmware to turn a TV remote into a listening device. Oh, so it's so not- they must. <laughs> <laughs> they have to get your remote control, put the firmware onto it, and then it will broadcast all that stuff out to you. This is ridiculous. So they're already in your home, and they're like, Ooh, "How could we spy on these people? Could we a put some cameras everywhere, or b?" Like reverse engineer the firmware on your remote control on the off chance that that's in the room that you're in and we can listen in on you and we can put a car outside. Brilliant. Well Does anybody done. remember the old Logitech remote controls, like the all-in-ones? Oh, I never want, I never bought one, but I was always a little bit envious of those that did. Uh, I used to have one, and um, a couple of months ago, somebody managed to get Doom uh, installed and running on the little <laughs> screen uh, that used to get on the Logitech remotes. Now, that's a good firmware hack. And on that bombshell, we must end 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at ImmersiveLabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs. Until next time, from all of us, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.